0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this new podcast series, we explore elements of American operas, production and reception histories, social contexts, historical valences, and more through our artist and scholar community. In this episode from May 2018, Dana Joya, internationally acclaimed and award-winning poet, former California Poet Laureate and Chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, discusses one of his heroes, Walt Whitman, and how Whitman's great love of opera influenced his life and work. To continue learning about American opera, visit our lesson plans and resources page at laopera.org forward slash connects.
1: I'm delighted to be here today. Now, people introduced me as a Poet Laureate of California, the former chairman of the NEA, a professor at USC. I'm a working-class guy from Hawthorne, California. Uh, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I was raised mostly by people who didn't speak English. My dad was Sicilian. My mom was Mexican. The arts were transformative in my life. The other thing I am is a failed composer. When I was young, I wanted to be, you know, a musician, a composer, but I just really wasn't good enough. And then I got interested in poetry, which sort of took my attention. But I began piano lessons with Sister Camille Cecile uh, at second grade. And I played piano. I played clarinet, bass clarinet, tenor saxophone. I've always loved music. My dad used to put on Mario Lanza records and Caruso records and and opera. He never went to the opera, but he liked listening to it. Uh, So I've had a great interest in opera. So what I wanted to do today is really talk about Opera, in a way, you probably haven't thought of it, which is that opera as a literary form. You know, we think of opera as musical, but it's a different kind of music than a symphony. And I'll tell you how opera began, how opera started. I think this is very relevant for the work of art, you know, which is th- this opera about Walt Whitman we're going to talk about. And then I'll move into talking about Walt Whitman. I also have written the libretti for four operas. And I've worked with you know productions of operas and with singers. And so I have a, a perspective, too, about the words. Now, opera began in Italy, big surprise, uh, in, the, in the city of Florence in 1597. And really, if you think about it, 1599 to 1600, uh, those are the years that are pivotal for opera. So what's going on in Italy at that point is the Renaissance. And you have this rediscovery. At that point, if you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a statesman, you speak Italian, but you write everything in Latin. So you have this deep relationship with, with Latin that you learn earliest education, but you don't really learn Greek. At this point, they start to read Greek, and they want to, to experience the Greek classics. And one of the things that they really are interested in is Greek tragedy. Now, if you, if you think about Greek tragedy, you know, we think of it as a very highfalutin, formal kind of drama. And in some sense, it was. But how was, was Greek drama performed? They performed it in an outdoor theater. And who came? Every citizen of Athens. In the front rows, they reserved for the young men who were just joining the army. And it was a civic celebration. And the entire town came. Uh, and they voted on what they liked. You don't have a lot of amplification available at that point. So they have masks that are like megaphones. And that's why they're wearing the masks. What does the chorus do? The chorus dances. And they're dum 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 you know. And so you have, essentially, in Greek drama, something very similar to a Broadway show. You have actors in costumes, singing, with dances. And a lot of times they would say, you know, frankly, you know, your version of Oedipus wasn't very good, but the dancing was fantastic. You're the winner. And you know, we have rec- you know, recordings of it. was a, a complete performance. So these Italians are saying, how do we get in touch with this great legacy of Greeks? And they said, let's do an exact replica of Greek drama. Now, you already know what this is. Now, your name is, my dear? Rita, Rita. Now, if if you told me, In oh, see, but you, if you told me a story about your life, and you just told me an interesting thing that happened, and your name is, Carole. and Carolee, and I said, okay, we're going to act it out for you. We're going to put on costumes and act out and act it out for you. We're ready. Uh, and you looked at us. How accurate would our version be? <laughs> 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 You'd say, well, you know. It's kind of like what happened to me. And that's what opera is. They decided that they were going to do an exact replica of Greek drama. And so they wrote you know, this poetic drama. They got you know, costumes. They got singers. The, they probably, in these early things, had certain kinds of dancing and spent a lot of money, because they were done for usually for a royal wedding or a coronation. And they created something that has very little to do with Greek tragedy. But it has the, the elemental characteristics, which is a, you know, a poetic story, which is told through song, a combination. The first opera, which is called Daphne, the, the, the myth of Daphne and Apollo, where he's, as he's trying essentially to, to, to rape her, she turns into a laurel tree. Very interesting story for Italians to tell, I think. I mean, uh, in, our, in our sense, It was all recitative. There was probably very little melodies. And in fact, what survives of the first opera? None of the music. They didn't think the music was that important. The text, they saw opera as poetic drama. And the purpose of the music was to heighten the poetry. So you were essentially going to a poetic performance with music supporting it. As opera went on, guess what happened? It's not difficult to predict. Mm-hmm. The music became more and more interesting. And then finally, they had this argument. Uh, if you've ever seen Richard Strauss's Capriccio, they That's actually nice. relived this argument, which was, prima la musica mm-hmm. o prima la parole? What co- what's more important, the music, prima the la music? musica, or prima la le- other words? Yeah, we know what one, la musica. And so opera became more and more musical. But if you were an Italian theater goer, you pretty much understood every word. I mean, uh, and there was you were still experiencing it as real theater. But something else happened to opera, which we still experience, is that opera almost immediately became an international form. Because people would come to Italy and say, "I love this stuff." So kings, dukes, princes, Would create opera companies all over Europe, and they were staffed almost entirely by Italians. So you know, I mean, Italians are always people that will travel anywhere for work. You know, like you know, my my my, you know my family ended up from Sicily to Italy, you know, to Los Angeles for work. Uh, And so you created a double identity for opera. You had opera uh, sung in Italian for Italians, where people uh, understood the text and, and. and experience the text as poetry. You had very important poets writing uh, writing operatic texts. But at the same time, you had everywhere else in the world uh, what was initially all Italian opera, sung by Italians to audiences which didn't really know Italian. And so they would read the synopsis. And in fact, if you look at the Metropolitan Opera libretti that you, the translations you get today, they're full of mistakes. They have incredibly bad translations. And so a story was created, which most of you, I'm sure, have heard, which is opera's got beautiful music, but the words are silly. The plots are silly. I think that's an entire uh, misunderstanding of opera, because opera uses words differently from the way you would use them on the page, and it tells stories differently from the way a novel is. And so where the greatest prejudice against opera was in England, which is a country which essentially had almost no opera until the 20th century. And England, now, what is the greatest art form in 19th century England is the novel. In a novel, you think of George Eliot's Middlemarch, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, uh, uh, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte you have a, a story which is told over, let's say, 300, 400. My wife and I, I'm a poet laureate of, of California. I drive all over the state. So I mean, I was in Modoc and Lassen County last week. I'm going to go to Inyo and um, Mono counties this week. I've got you know, five, six-hour drives. My wife and I listen to Anthony Trollope novels on tape. <laughs> oh, yeah, and and, and, my, and w- when you pick it up, they're kind of intimidating, because it'll say, Back of the CD thing, it'll go twenty-seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, know uh, you can go to a lot of counties with one Trollope novel. But that's but the beauty of Trollope is you take the story and every little nuance of the story is told. Every character's perspective is in, and it's the greatness. The greatest moment I think of, of modern British literature is the creation of the novel, which is the most intimate way we'll ever understand another person. Because the novel not only tells you the story, it tells you the story from inside the person. And and this is so important uh, to civilization. Because what it does is it cultivates the notion that uh, my life is complicated and difficult, but your life is complicated and difficult, and yours is too. All of us today bring a, a, a whole life into this room. I have no way of knowing all of the things that are going on in your life, good, bad, or indifferent. But what the novel does is train us to understand the complexity of the inner and outer lives of other people as they move through time in significant action. And so Trollope can spend 27 hours. Now, to my knowledge, only one composer in all history has spent 27 hours. That's Wagner for *The Ring*. Uh, And if I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to go to Rigoletto uh, tonight, and it'll be over sometime, uh, you know, uh, you know, on on Monday morning," you'd say, "Well, then I'm busy, and I'm busy." So what opera does very necessarily is it takes these stories and compresses them. So here are the the three things that you really need to know about operatic language, operatic poetry. Uh, Because even now in the 21st century, 90-plus percentage of operas are written in verse and and poetry. It works better. Uh, Why? Because song and poetry are the same art. In the ancient world, who knows the Latin word for song? Does anyone know? Carmen. Carmen means song. What else does it mean in Latin? It means poetry. What else does it mean? It means magic spell. So poetry and song are the same art. That's why opera, even if it wants to become prosaic, always comes back to poetry, because there's something inherently song-like about poetry. So the first thing about poetry is that it requires, excuse me, opera is it requires lyrical language. Now, lyrical language is not the language of the novel. The novel is kind of realistic, detailed, you know, so in poetry you want the one detail that evokes all of these other things. In a novel, you want all of the details so you can exactly see. If you read anybody here read uh, Tom Wolfe's *Bonfire of the Vanities*, oh, yeah. great, it's a great book. It tells you what they're wearing, how much it cost, where they yeah, bought them. Yeah. You know, and it, it, and that's what makes the novel work. Is it, you know all the details about everybody there? So everybody who comes in the room, you know how much they make, where they shop. It's the state of their marriage, you know, yeah. uh, you know how many bills they have. <laughs> Opera doesn't, you have lyrical language that's evocative. You know, uh, so, you know, uh, Mimi, you know, asks Rodolfo in La Boheme to introduce himself. He goes, "Chi son? Who am I? Son un poeta. I'm a poet. Mm-hmm. What do I do? Che cosa faccio? Scrivo. E come vivo? You know, what do I do? I write. Come vivo? How do I make a living? Vivo, <laughs> <You know? laughs> I exist, you know, and so in that one word, you know, come vivo, vivo, Tom Wolf would give you a whole chapter of how the guy makes a living, you know, and but Rodolfo does it in one word, I get by, vivo, I exist, uh, and so you have, you have lyrical language, the stories have to be compressed, so the novel will tell you, I mean, one thing that drives me crazy about a lot of TV shows now is they have so much backstory, you know, yeah. you know, there's so many flashbacks. The plot never moves right. forward. Right. You know, right. uh, you don't do that in opera. Uh, you know, you have, you tend to take a big story, and you break it. Like you think of La Boheme, which is based on a novel. Puccini takes it and and br- condenses it into four episodes, and the four mm-hmm. episodes take you from the moment the lovers meet, uh, you know, uh, the joy that they experience in their life, their breakup, and their reconciliation, as she, you know, as she dies, um, and so and there's whole things, there's whole years in that plot that are that are take that are you know taken out. The first two acts describe essentially in real time, you know, about an hour of their existence. Uh, the second two acts, you know, take whole years, and it works because you see the significant moments. So you have lyrical language, you have a compressed plot, and then. Let's say you know I'm going to give you tickets to Rigoletto, and I tell you that you know we have you know uh, Juan Jesus Rodriguez singing, or you can hear Dana Joya singing. Which one are you going to pick? <laughs> the first one. You're not going to hear me sing. So, in the third thing about opera is once they began putting it on, they realized like all theatrical performances, like movies and everything else, you have to create lyrical language and situations which create allow. Great performers to give, to impersonate, to become great figures, to be powerful figures, so that when someone walks on the stage through the music, through the drama, through the poetry, they command your attention, and that is the real power of, of opera. I think, you know, you can, you know, you take, you know, uh, some heartless, you know, person, you know, uh, give them a good opera seat, and they weep when Mimi dies because somehow the, the, by creating you know, this lyric moment of a concentrated plot with a powerful spe- you know, performer, they can come into you and break through your defenses, which is what all art does, is to melt all the, the defenses that we have in our lives and allow people to experience that thing. Same with the poetry does, because all of us go through life with all of these barriers between us and the world. You go through guarded life, and what art does is relax those and allow you to have a, tr- a meaningful imaginative transaction. And you do that in opera necessarily through performers. In fact, there are operas that are wonderful music, but they don't allow, in a sense, the characters to b- become alive in an independent way where we can have this, this thing that somehow you have this direct transaction. With somebody else at an absolutely pivotal moment in their life, the words are important too. You know, and so if you think of this form, it has almost from the first time people heard it, it has captivated people. There are people, and I'm one of them. That to a certain degree, I am more greatly. I love all of the arts, but I'm more greatly moved by a great operatic performance than almost any other kind of artistic experience I have. There's something about the fact, and you think about this, this is what Wagner talks about, the Gesamtkunstwerk, the together artwork. And this is what the Florentine intellectuals that created it. They thought of poetry, scenery, acting, music, dancing, You create this combined effect. So the the Gesamtkunstwerk was not invented by Wagner, although he articulated it and and controlled it. It was, you know, essentially always inherent in opera. You know, you have this, and so it's captivated people. So now I'm going to move forward from 1590s, 1600, to 19th century America. If you uh, went to New York in the 1840s, it's not a very big town. I mean, it's, you know, it's probably about, about the size of Glendale. You know, but it was you know, a big city. I mean, it was, you know, it was not even a half million people. And two of the most popular entertainments they had were Shakespeare and opera. Shakespeare was enjoyed by every class of people, as was opera. They were not considered at that point uh, high-brow forms. They were, they were, like, they were, I think the things that are probably most similar to movies and Broadway musicals. It was something you wanted to do. Now, there was a young boy named Walter Whitman, who was born on a farm in Long Island in 1819. I don't know if anybody who've been to, Walt, to Whitman's ha- homestead? Yeah. I mean, it really is, it's really remarkably well-preserved. You know, you could actually see the room that he slept in. And, and Whitman, you know, was from a farming family, English and Dutch. They had nine kids, one of whom died in infancy, and, and one of whom was developmentally disabled, the, the, the last one. So Whitman's from a big family, a farm family, and everyone in the family loved Walt, but you know how, you know, in family, everybody has an identity. You know, you know. This is, you know, they'll say, "Well, is this the?" They ask me, "Is this that?" You know, brother. i won't tell you what I, they call him. Is that the bad brother? Is this the good brother? You know, Whitman was co- universally considered by his family as really charming but lazy. <laughs> um, you know, he would, you know, he would, he would, you know, uh, disappear. I have a son like this. He would disappear when there's work to be done. <laughs> uh, and so, Whitman's in this large family. These are working people. These are people with not a lot of education. They have books. And they have the, the, you know, a few books. They've got uh, the Bible, the works of Shakespeare you know, uh, you know, in the farmhouse. And Whitman uh, leaves school at 11, which doesn't surprise me because both my, my Mexican grandfather and my Italian grandfather both left school at 11, because that's when a kid is old enough to start helping around the farm. And so Whitman doesn't really like to be the farm work. So he goes off and becomes just an office boy. And then he starts to work for a printer. And really, uh, by his teens, he starts to work in newspapers. And this is what he does most of his uh, early life. In fact, he even starts a newspaper at one point uh, which goes bankrupt you know, within a year, and actually no copies of the newspaper survives. If you ever come across one that says, Walt Whitman, editor, save it. <laughs> it's worth a lot of money. So he starts to do this, and, you know, and he uh, just goes from newspaper to newspaper to newspaper. It's clear that everybody likes Whitman, but he's not a most dependable employer. And, and so this is what he, you know, the, what he does, and he loves, uh, he loves the big city. He loves, he loves nature. He's just an enthusiast. And so he comes through there. And so you see between 11 and 35, you know, he basically, he learns how to operate a press. He learns how to write. He learns how to set type. You know, he's a, a reporter. I mean, he actually, uh, there's interviews with famous people, you know, that Dickens did. And his great entertainment is to go to the opera. So... You know, Walt Whitman is a complete opera queen. You know, he goes there, he writes about it, he argues about it. Uh, Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale, uh, comes to the United States. He doesn't like Jenny Lind, so he has this, you know, the way that people have their, their favorite divas that they, that they argue about. He, there's a couple of, of Italian singers, I've written their names down because I, I had, uh, yeah. Marietta Alboni, uh, is his is is the diva that he really loves the best, who's one that kind of like him just came from nowhere you know and, you know and came up through the ranks and you know and, and he also saw there's a very legendary couple Mario and Grisi. Uh these are two of the most famous opera singers of the 19th century. Uh, they worked with Bellini and Donizetti, uh, and and whenever they came on tour he he was there. So he has this profound relationship with opera, which in a sense is. If you used one word to describe it, is rapturous. He goes there and he goes to performance after performance after performance. I, many years ago, I went through all of his diaries and letters to see what his favorite opera was, uh, and I'm almost certain, you know, this I've talked is, is Bellini's La Sonnambula, you know, the, uh, which is an interesting thing. Not an opera done very much anymore, although it's an extraordinarily beautiful opera. But if you think of La Sonnambula, <laughs> this is an opera with a very slow, very lyrical plot. And it's basically an excuse for rapture. And it's you know ex- exquisite singing. Uh, this goes on. So we've, we've, we've seen Wittenborn. We've seen at 11 that he goes off into, you know, into the world. He's always in good terms with his family. He always comes back and forth with his family. But he's making his own living uh, as a printer, as a journalist. And at 35, he publishes his first book. And by I mean publish, he self publishes his own book, and it's called Song of Myself. Now the title of, of that work tells you most of what you need to know about that work. Now if you read the epics, the epics always begin, or almost always begin, with the poet addressing the muse and announcing, you know, his theme. So. In, in, in Virgil, it begins, Arma virumque cano primus aboris Troiae. Arms and the man I sing. I sing about a guy who's a soldier, who first from the shores of Troy came. To, you know, it goes on and on. You know, of man, Milton, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. He takes him at Milton about 20 lines before he says, I sing. So I sing heavenly muse, not the pagan muse, but the heavenly muse. So we have songs. So we have the song of Achilles' anger. We have the song of Odysseus' travels. We have the song of Aeneas uh, fleeing Troy to create Rome. Uh, we have the song of, of how God created the world and how Adam and Eve sing. And now we have the song of myself. Now, and I'll talk about what that means, but you have now, he publishes this poem. And uh, he does he doesn't in the first edition even put his own name on it. But he has a picture of you know, this thing, which is Whitman as a young man, not wearing a tie. See, I'm, you know, in LA, I'm, you know, no man knows how to dress in LA anymore because, you know, we don't, we really don't know how anybody dresses. I mean, I don't know whether I wear a tie today or not. So we go, well, I can't wear a tie, you know. But uh, where, you know, most most of you know, times people dress a certain way, you never saw an author with an open shirt, a workman's cap, you know, uh, in 19th century. It was a deliberate creation of a self, which is, I am the everyman, I am the worker. So he brings a couple of copies to the local bookstore and convinces the guy to get them. Next day, the guy calls him back and says, get these books out of my store. They're obscene. And this becomes, essentially, a theme in Whitman's life. So he, he has a couple of other friends who have bookstores that, that do it. But uh, from the beginning, people think the work is obscene. Now we wouldn't think it's obscene at all. But there are, you know, but it's there's a kind of eroticism in this thing. You know, there's, and there's often people, you know, bathing naked and things like this. But you could you sense from it, which is a kind of Whitman is open to the world and, and eros you know, is always there. So what happens is he, sen- he sends copies. He reviews the book himself and says, this is a work of genius. Uh, in fact, Whitman writes three, three rave reviews of, of the song himself, And he sends a copy. Uh, does anybody know who he, sends, who he sent the copy to? Yeah. He sends a copy to Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Emerson writes him the letter that every young author wants. And he goes, I, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. I mean, it's a little like uh, I, I believe it's Liszt hearing Chopin. Hats off, gentlemen, a genius. Uh, and so, so Emerson. And what does Whitman do with Emerson's letter? Publishing. Yeah, he publishes it in the book, uh, and then he puts his name on the book. And 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 how does he? What does he call his name? Not Walter Walt. Whitman. It's Walt Whitman. That too. I mean, you don't don't have Ralphie Emerson. You don't have Hank Longfellow. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you have. This is where authors use all three names, and the book begins to get a small cult audience. Whitman is not even mildly famous. He's got now. The book is rather unique. How many of you have read "Song of Myself"? Or okay, "Song of Myself." Becomes the title almost of every book that Whitman publishes. He just keeps adding poems and adding poems and adding poems. There are, I think, uh, I have to check this, uh, about 20 different editions. And he just keeps putting things into it. The key thing is leaves of grass. You know, leaves of grass is the is, you know, is a thing which begins, I celebrate myself and sing myself. Now, once again, does it always begin that way? No. The f- opening line of, of, of Leaves of Grass changes from addition to division. When I remember Whit- Whitman, I've always got to find the addition that I'm that I'm remembering. So you know, he has this, and he's still scraping by an existence in New York. He's always involved in in politics, not always happily. Uh, he was very anti-Catholic and anti-Irish. I mean, we think of you know, we idealize Whitman as the as the you know, as the you know the great champion of democracy, which he wasn't a lot of ways, but he still had some of the prejudices. That, you know, the whole nativist thing—they didn't want these immigrants coming, in, these Irish. and these so, Irish—and so—and he, you know, there's some very embarrassing, uh, you know, newspaper articles that Whitman wrote, you know, against, against the Irish. But he basically, he begins to identify with the Republican anti-slavery movement, and so Lincoln, you know, becomes his hero. What happens when a new president is elected, I say this as somebody who's lived and worked in Washington, people go to Washington looking for jobs, jobs because you have all these appointments. So Whitman came there, you know, he's been writing about politics, he knows all these people in politics, and he begins to get a series of appointments. Now, I, I, it's almost impossible to go through how many he has, but what happens again and again is that he gets an appointment his boss, somebody shows his boss Leaves of Grass or Song of Myself, and he gets fired. Uh, so he gets fired again and again, you know, and you know, uh, and finally when, this, you know, when the Civil War breaks out and everything is, he's working in the Department of Interior, he gets, you know, you know fired there. He works in the Defense Department, I think, is, I think is where he finally doesn't get fired. But what happens now, in, I'm sure you've all been, almost everybody here has been to Washington, D.C. Uh, Washington, D.C. is laid out by a Frenchman who has a, a very neoclassical sense of a city. You've got Congress, you've got the White House, you have the Supreme Court, In uh, a European city, what would the fourth arm of this, this cross be? The cathedral. And so when they're do- deciding this, they say, well, let's build a national cathedral. And there is a national cathedral, but it's over on Wisconsin. They said, well, what do we do? And there was a a debate about what you created, and they created, what do they build, does anybody know? They build the patent office. And they do this very, you know, because what's America about? We don't have a national church. We don't ask everybody to be part of one church, but we are about invention. We're about innovation. And when you get a patent, you have to do a model or a drawing. And they have those on exhibition, you know, one of the most popular destinations. Because this is in Washington before the Smithstone National. This is the only museum that really exists at that point. And become very, very popular. The war breaks out. And they empty the building to bring in the wounded. And in fact, they even bring in Confederate wounded a lot of times. But it's mostly the uh, Union wounded. The Civil War was the most destructive war in American history. More Americans were killed in the Civil War than the First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnamese War, and these uh, Middle Eastern Wars combined. And you think about this, and this is on a much smaller country. So there was just a level of carnage that was extraordinary. And you don't have antibiotics, you don't have really antiseptic surgery. So you, you get a wound, the wound festers, they cut your leg off, they cut your arm off, and hope you don't die. Uh, and so they don't have enough personnel for this. And so you, if you go to the patent office, just imagine every room full of beds with people lying on the floor. And Whitman, so we see him at 11, you know, basically, when he's uh, going to the world, 35 when he publishes The Leaves of Grass. At the age of 43. You know, he begins to do this. And this becomes uh, it, the formational experience in his later career. And so he's there nursing these boys, essentially, as if they're family members. And what he's mostly doing is giving them somebody to die beside. You know, I mean, that's, that's when you say nursing, that's what he's really doing is not letting the, the kids die alone. So he goes there, and he, you know, he dictates letters to their parents you know, letters to their sweethearts. Um, You know, he tries to, you know, he brings them, you know, uh, little things to do and then hopes they don't die, but most of them do die. And so if you read his accounts of this, it's so-and-so died, so-and-so died, so-and-so died. A little Confederate boy came in, you know, this. uh, And every now and then, you know, there's somebody who pulls through. So he has this tremendous experience. Now, if you think about this, Whitman has the kind of contradictions, which I think are deeply uh, essentially human. he feels very much, and I, think, and I think a lot of us do, we feel slightly like we're outsiders, uh, but, but in other ways we have connections. And so he's an outsider who really wants a deep connection with the world, with other people, with his nation, which he believes, I mean, if you want a, uh, somebody who believes in American exceptionalism, it's Walt Whitman. He believes that there's something going on in America that's never gone on in human history before. And it's about the liberation and the empowerment of the common person. And so, and so this moment in, you know, in you know, the hospital becomes, for Whitman, you know, this kind of, that's his marriage, in a sense, to the country. Uh, that's where he, all of these people are family. Then what happens? Lincoln is assassinated. And uh, you know, Whitman writes, you know, really the two great elegies uh, you know, about Lincoln. And meanwhile, and so he starts to develop an audience. Now, Whitman's, d- despite the letter from Emerson, Whitman's first real readers, people that champion him, are British. The book comes over there and the British recognize that this is something really different and really special. A lot of the British writers who champion him are gay, and they recognize, in a sense, he's writing about gay experience. You know in the United States, they ask Emily Dickinson about, about Whitman, and she says, "I have never read him. I've been told that the, that the book uh, is, is uh, disgusting, you know." Uh, I think that's the word that she uses, you know, that it's repellent, because, you know, not a book that a a young lady should be reading. And and, uh, even Emerson says there are passages in, in this, you know, which I, you know, I find painful to read. I find him, you know, shameful to read. But so he's got a very qualified, but the British begin to do. But, and Whitman now is a canonic central poet. I don't think he is the greatest American poet, but he is... The most American great poet, if you can get that, uh, you know uh, that reversal. Of, and what group has championed Whitman more than any other composers? Almost from you know, and starting with British composers into American composers. Look at just take just take two. Go to the Grove's Dictionary of Music, or go to the uh, the internet, and just look at Friedrich Delius. Rafe von Williams, Gustav Hall, just those three composers—and see how many Whitman settings you'll see. You'll just see setting after setting after setting after setting, because what they recognized about Whitman was you have lyrical language, but it's flowing, and it, uh, you know, and uh, it, it's not—you know—it's not as—it's you know, not, as, not as compressed, but it's more uh, fluent. Than poetic language, American composers. I mean, you could, you know, you know, again and again. I mean, you know, you know, it starts really in American composers, primarily in the '30s, in the WPA era, when people like Roy Harris, you know, begin, you know, to you know, to create, you know, you know, works out of him. and you you could be, you know, and then it comes through, you know, people like Ned Roram, and once again, you can find several hundred settings of Whitman, of which uh, Matthew O'Coin uh, is just uh, the most recent. I was t- you know, telling some people at lunch today, I feel old because you know Matthew O'Coin went to school with my son. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, I'm talking about a, a composer of my son's generation. But, uh, but let's, now let's go back to Whitman, because I've been talking about Whitman's life, I've been talking about his place in the culture, but let's talk about Whitman as a poet. Whitman has four influences on his poetry. And you can feel them almost at once. The first one is Emerson. Emerson, I don't know who to compare Emerson to. Emerson is a minister, but he, his theological beliefs are kind of, are, are so liberal that he has to resign. And he becomes an essayist and a public speaker. So Emerson would come to town and literally 2,000 people would crowd into whatever the biggest building in the town. And he would give about a 90-minute to two-hour lecture. Uh, of these essays, and they are simply brilliant. And, and he, he is uh, essentially the, the root of Americanism uh, that Whitman responds to, which is deeply Protestant, about the, you know, this kind of interiority and independence of your conscience, of your life, and your life as a realization of those beliefs, of independence and individuality. You could say, in Emerson's case, almost heroic, individuality. And Whitman reads this, and, and people, that, people that are good at go Emerson, they come out of the, the lecture feeling that their life has been changed. I mean, that's, again and again, you have these accounts. He had to have been one of the best public speakers who ever uh, lived in the United States. And, and Whitman comes out, and you think about this. You, know, you have heroic individualism. Whitman decides to become the hero of his own epic, which is to say, uh, you know in, the, in France you're going to write about Roland uh, in, you know in, in you know in Greece you're writing about Achilles in ancient Rome you're writing about Aeneas but in the United States you're going to write up the epic is going to be about an average person experiencing everything that is in the United States and by the way I am that average person so you've got that Emersonian uh, thing the second thing uh, is the King James Bible now uh, I imagine we have some very religious, some religious people, not, I mean, everybody, but, but, you know, some of us are in this room are religious. We have a relationship with the Bible. But we have nothing like the relationship somebody had in the 19th century. Uh, Whitman's family would have read the Bible aloud several times every day. It would have been one of the few books in the house that you read again and again and again. And so Whitman has the syntax, the music of the Bible, deeply in him. Now, what's interesting during the Regency of King James They're translating the Bible. What's the decision they had to make about how to translate the poetry? Do you put it in meter, or do you put it (laughs) unmetered? And what do they decide to do? Unmetered. They put it in free verse because you don't uh, mess around with God's word. So you create, essentially, in the King James Bible, English free verse. It's not used very much until you get to the 19th century, but, but Whitman looks at this. And so he's saying, okay, I want to create an epic that's about me as the everyman hero of America. The Bible is a holy book, so I'm going to be a prophet. So he uses the language of the Bible in, in that sense. He's a journalist. And so journalists you know, cover topics. And so Whitman begins, in a sense, to say, here I am on the shore of Parmenach. Here I am you know, uh, the Niagara Falls. Here I am at the Hudson. So he gives you a set, and he has that journalistic uh, notion of place. And then finally, he has been listening to opera. So his, his sense of poetry is operatic. So he likes you know the notion of an aria. Somebody comes out and just creates a whole moment that you live in. And you'll repeat the melody. You'll take phrases like this. Especially if you think his, uh, Whitman's favorite operas are bel canto, Donizetti, Rossini, Bellini, Early Verdi. And so he creates these verbal arias. And so this is. Uh, you know, one of the ways in which it sounds Just Now, the thing about Whitman is that it goes on and on and on. It's, it's truly a Sena, but this is one you probably know, the beginning of Song of the Open Road. Afoot and light-hearted, I take to the open road. Healthy, free, the world before me, the long brown path before me, leading wherever I choose. Henceforth, I ask not good fortune. I myself am good fortune. Henceforth, I whimper no more, postpone no more, need nothing. Done with indoor complaints, libraries, querulous criticisms, strong and content, I travel the open road. The earth, that is sufficient. I do not want, I do not want the constellations any nearer. I know they are very well where they are. I know they suffice for those who belong to them. Still here I carry my old delicious burdens. I carry them, men and women. I carry them with me wherever I go. I swear it is impossible for me to get rid of them. I am filled with them, and I will fill them in return. Now, Whitman hasn't even gotten out of the door. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, this is a song with the open road, but it's, you know, the, 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 I mean, it's just great stuff. I mean, I ask not good fortune, I myself Am good fortune. I mean, they're just thrilling lines. But what he's doing, he's creating himself as this every man who is going to be, you know, cosmic. I mean, immediately starts talking about the stars uh, and all other people. You know, he will the ones that he knows will inhabit them, and he will inhabit the others. I inhale great drafts of space. I can't, the east and the west are mine. The north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. All seems beautiful to me. Now, if you want to summarize Whitman, "All seems beautiful to me" is the line. Uh, you know, that you that you do it. By the time Whitman dies, he's kind of remade himself. I mean, they keep you know, and he keeps changing the portraits. In the beginning, you know, the beginning. So every time, every not every edition, but almost every edition of, of Leaves of Grass and Song of Myself uh, come with, you know, with an older portrait. And he, and after World, after he writes these elegies to, uh, to Lincoln, it becomes, you know, especially the one that's the least characteristic poem. What's what's Whitman's most popular poem? Captain, my captain, which is one of the few poems that he rhymes, you know, Uh, but very popular. And so he, at the time of his death in Camden, New Jersey, he is known, he's the good gray poet. Much beloved, and English writers are making pilgrimages to him. Still not as popular as as the constellation of of poets around him Emerson, Longfellow, you know, Whittier, and by this point, Dickinson is beginning beginning to be published. So anyway, Whitman has very little effect on American poetry in the 19th century. Then suddenly as you come into the 20th century, you start to have the beginning of modernism. Modernist poetry in English is not terribly well understood because when we study it, we tend to study a relatively small group of people. But if you were in 1915 and somebody said, oh, who are the modernist poets? Most of them are from the Midwest. And they come out of Whitman, uh, Carl Sandburg, yeah. Vachel Lindsay, and, and they're creating this populist modernism. You've got one coming out of California, Edwin Markham, who was so famous that he couldn't walk on the streets because people would autograph. Then, about ten years later, a young man raised mostly in Joplin, Missouri, named Langston Hughes, <laughs> begins to to read Whitman through Sandburg, and so in the twenties you have this first huge influence of Whitman on American verse, but it's not the high modernism of T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Wallace Stevens, Hart Crane. It's the populist modernism of Sandberg, you know, Langston Hughes, Vachel Lindsay, Edgar Lee Masters, who you know, did Spoon River. That populist modernism is more or less shunted aside by academics you know, for many years. It's really only maybe the last 20, 30 years it sort of come back meanwhile he comes into to england and english choral music which is so influ- is delious begins to, to uh, essentially uh, set huge passages of it as does Vaughn Williams, Vaughn Williams' first symphony, a C Symphony, is entirely text by Walt Whitman. His uh, Gustav Holst, I mean, it has everything from the mystic trumpeter, you know, all you know, these things. I mean, if, if Whitman's setting, excuse me, Holst is setting it to music, it's either from the Rig Veda in Sanskrit or it's by Walt Whitman. And I think he likes them for both reasons. They're sort of mystical, cosmic poetry. And so these things, you know, become extremely influential. I think the Americans who begin setting him, uh, like Roy Harris, I don't think they're connected to the British uh, thing. I think they're really coming, uh, coming out of, in the 30s, uh, you know, when, when you have a populist sense, you know, where, you know, where they're looking, what's the poetry of the worker? Who is the poet they're looking to? It's Carl Sandburg. Carl Sandburg was immensely famous in ways people, you, know, you can go to Carl Sandburg's home, his last home in North Carolina. It's a national park. Uh, and it's, it's left exactly the way he was when he was died. And so the two really famous poets in the United States for the average person were Robert Frost and Carl Sandburg. Uh, and, you know, Frost couldn't stand Sandburg. You know, <laughs> and the reason he couldn't stand Sandburg is he was as famous as Frost was. And, he, and they would say, "Well, where is he?" he said, well, he's probably upstairs washing his hair. He would say, you know, uh, you know. And, but Sandburg was on, you know, on on uh, TV shows and things like this. And so he influenced this then. In the, as you come into the into the '50s, the Beats, who you know, you know uh, who are mostly New Yorkers but basically gel as a poetic movement in San Francisco, take Whitman as their model. So you have you know uh, G- uh, Ginsberg and Corso, Furlingetti, you know less so, but you know it comes through, and you have essentially enters the mainstream, and it also, you know, through Ginsburg, it becomes part of gay identity, uh, you know, for poets. But you think about that, it's not until he's dead that Whitman's poetry has a really tangible influence. There's a few poets around the turn of the century, a school called the Vagabond Poets, who were essentially Harvard guys who went on trips and died young. Um, And uh, they're almost forgotten. I mean, bliss Carmen, people like this, but they're completely forgotten. They were influenced by, by Whitman a little bit, too. But it's, you know, it's really the populist modernists who are Midwesterners, and that's the interesting thing. They're seeing themselves as against the East and the beats. Uh, I went to Harvard and Stanford, and I had the, the best literary education I could possibly have. And I was universally assured by my teachers that poetry would never be popular again. That, that poetry was difficult. Only you know, only the trained intellectuals like you and I are smart enough to get poetry. I mean, look at these people. They, they're not going to get it. Uh, and so, uh, and I was you know raised. I mean, I was kind of at the end of that kind of elite uh, modernism. Now, my my odd thing was that I'm from people with no education, and they like poetry. I had a Mexican uncle and an Italian, a Sicilian uncle. You know, that you know, they would. The least provocation would begin reciting in Italian the Divine Comedy. Nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la darita era smarrita. Ah, qual era? È una cosa dura, questa know, And they would, and my mother, you know, my mother didn't have much education, and she went to school in those barbaric times. Now, I don't know if you can imagine a country so cruel as the country my mother grew up as a working class Mexican woman. Girl, where they made her memorize poems in school. I mean, can you believe that barbarity? Uh, we should be playing you know, reparations to these, you know, these grammar school kids. So my mother had these poems by heart, and they were so precious to her. She was always reciting poetry. You know, it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child. And my mother would recite these things, and I loved them. I liked the spell that they created. I think it's actually one of the reasons that I became a poet was that I liked this kind of hypnotic spell, where when you inhabit parts of your of your memory and your imagination surface, in you don't really understand your parents until they're gone, you know. <laughs> and so, and I realized that for her, she had a, a childhood of complete brutality. I mean, she lost her mother. My grandfather was not a you know not a model father. Uh, and, and she you know, barely had enough to eat, and you know, her father would disappear. And that somehow, what this poetry was to her, and I didn't really realize this until she was really on her deathbed, was a kind of these islands of joy, of vision that, she, that gave her continuity. And so, so what's the role, to answer your question, what's the role of the poet is that I was told, well, you know, the poet is there to produce texts for intellectuals to interpret, which is, you know, if you're an intellectual, okay, it's a job, you know? Uh, Nice work if you can get it. Uh, But I always said, you know, I'm from people for whom there was something really important going on. And so I have always believed that poetry is irreplaceable because we all use words every day. We use words to talk to each other, to talk to ourselves. We use words to talk to God. And as long as we're going to use words to articulate what we're experiencing, what does it mean to be human and mortal on this planet? What does it mean to go through time you know, in this kind of ship of our bodies you know, towards either extinction or eternity? As long as we use language, poetry becomes valuable, becomes irreplaceable because our, it's our most concise, Expressive and memorable way of using words to describe our existence. And so I felt as a poet that my job was to write a poem that I could show another poet. I could show it, you know, the intellectual elite, and they would find good. But that's just secondary. It's about having a transaction with other alert, intelligent human beings. And b- believe it or not, I know this is controversial. I don't think the epicenter of human intelligence is always the English department. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you know. I work in one, uh, but I I find intelligent, curious, alert people, and I find dumb people everywhere I go, including the English department. And so. And so, so what it is is it's this web of language. Now as poet laureate, the, pro- the project I chose is to visit all 58 counties of California. Uh, Los Angeles County has almost 10 million. Yeah, yeah. It has 10 million people. What's the smallest county in California? Alpine. How many people are in Alpine? 1400. Oh. And, you know, so I, I, mean, I go to places, and the places that I try to go to are places that often have never had a poetry reading. I always bring local people. There's always a writer in town. I mean, you can, you know, I've never seen a town small enough that doesn't have a poet. I bring school kids, bring the, you know, the local things. So, I mean, I, I'll be there with the second graders. I'll be there with published poets. And we always get an audience. The library is always surprised by how many people come. The bar is surprised by how many people come. <laughs> Uh, And so so who is is poetry, what's the role of poetry, is to give words for people uh, so that they can better enjoy, understand, and endure their lives. Whitman made a a scant living as a journalist. He made irregular uh, money uh, from his poetry, and he was not immune to, to asking for gifts of money. Uh, and sometimes his fans would send him money. He just scraped by him. And if you look, you can find the room that Walt Whitman died in is in Camden, New Jersey. It's a, not a nice house. I mean, it's just a you know, kind of thing, but he was there. He, he had you know, basic you know, comfort. And uh, many people, in the same way that he, in the Civil War, sat by the deathbed of these soldiers, many people came to nurse him and uh, and uh, you know serve as, as company for him in his last years, but no, he never made substantial, uh, never made a, a real living from his poetry. And once he gave up journalism, his living became kind of kind of uncertain. Many people, I think, have made a living off selling his first editions and manuscripts, but you know, uh, you know, he didn't get part of that. I wrote an opera called no, the libretto for an opera called Nosferatu, so it's the story, it's the it's the Dracula story. Uh, based on the movie by F.W. Murnau, made in 1922 in Germany, and it was remade by uh, Werner Herzog in 1980, I don't know, 1990? I forget what, what that is. Now why did they call it Nosferatu? Well they, it was literally they stole Dracula, but they couldn't get the rights. So uh, so they retitled it, Murnau said, okay, I, I've got to make it a little different from uh, from Dracula. so. He, put a, you know, he dropped the adventure part of it and put a little bit of Wagner in it. And he wrote, actually, the, screen, the silent film screenplay in verse. And when you look at his version, it, it struck me as very much like a, like a bel canto opera. It's like Lucia, about a woman trapped in an impossible, tragic position, which she doesn't have the power to do. So this is the vampire's love song. Uh, now, if you think about this, the vampire has to convince her to come with him v- willingly. So you know, what, what's the plausible argument that a vampire would make? I mean, because you know, generally, you don't want to date a vampire. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe some of you do. Uh, you know, but, and so what, he's, what he says is that I'm going to address, you've always been lonely in your life. You've always felt different from other people. There's always been a kind of darkness inside of you that you've never been able to acknowledge. I acknowledge that. That's what we have together, that I will come in these incomplete longings that you have I will complete. Uh, and so, you know, now it's usually bad to, to agree with a vampire's argument, but that's the argument he's making with it. So this is his serenade. I am the image that darkens your glass, the shadow that falls wherever you pass. I am the dream you cannot forget, the face you remember without having met. I am the truth that must not be spoken, the midnight vow that cannot be broken. I am the bell that tolls out the hours. I am the fire that warms and devours. I am the hunger that you have denied, the ache of desire piercing your side. I am the sin you have never confessed, the forbidden hand touching your breast. You've heard me inside you speak in your dreams, sigh in the ocean, whisper in streams. I am the future you crave and you fear. You know what I bring. Now I am here. Um, so, Gennady uh, you know, Tompik, but you know, uh, the, 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 and that's that. In uh, with in with the, that's operatic because it's it's you can see the person on the stage. You can you see the thing about writing an opera. You got to have it tell the singer who he is, what you know he or she wants, where he or she is going, and so you, it puts you in that moment, you know. And, and baritones like this song. So it's been a great pleasure to be with you all. Uh, So thank you very
0: To continue learning about American opera, visit our lesson plans and resources page at laopera.org forward slash connects. If you enjoyed listening to LA Operas Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media. And we'll see you at the opera.